Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Look at that. The right presenters for the right guest. This is, you know, we're back, we're back on form. No one's on, no one's on vacation. Very slick. Very slick, although I think truly slick would be not to stop and comment on just, you know, doing the <laughs> basics right, but you know. <laughs> take the wind where you can right um look really good episode today coming up uh we've got a, a really fun interview i thought with jason sue who is the chairman i think the founder and cio of Radiant global advisors a um an asset management firm that specializes in investing in china jason was great uh without like telling you what he says his his main mistake circles around hubris and entitlement hubris one of your favorite words isn't it alex is it? I think almost, almost like a catchphrase. I would say the amount of times you've used it. Um, but in, refer- in reference to you, or just ge- just generally? I mean, it could well have been because the standout thing he said is my approach to investing in China was entirely the worst one to do. I suppose the interview was someone in two parts. It was Jason's mistakes, uh, and he was very candid about those hubris and entitlement were the issues there. But but quite fun, quite fun mistakes. I thought sort of some meme stocks involved. Uh, I think we can say that much. Uh, and then I suppose the second half of the interview was a little bit more about mistakes that people make when investing in China, because actually Jason's mistakes weren't necessarily about that. Um, and we kind of touched on, I suppose, mistakes that Western people make or people outside of China make when when trying to invest in the country. And yeah, Frank, he sort of alluded to the way you're doing it as, as being wrong. Is that is that fair? Was I being mean? I, I think that's what he said. He was pretty kind about it, but you'll, you'll hear all in the episode. Well, look, without further ado, here is our interview with Jason Tsu. Uh, the biggest mistake that I have made, uh, and I think, you know, I, I do still uh, make that same mistake. Uh, slow learner here. Uh, hubris and entitlement what i mean by that so this takes me back to gamestop i I think all of us still remember that that stock and uh, this was actually after melbourne capital and citron capital have lost a lot of money shorting against gamestop and i even did a case study for 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 my students at at ucla feeling really smart talking about it at the same time uh, I, uh, I wrote some call options because the implied volatility on that was still crazy and the price was still quite elevated. And I made good money from that. Uh, and then, of course, when GameStop price sort of eased off and then made another huge uh, spike. Subsequently, I go, wow, what a great chance to make some easy money again. Uh, and I got more aggressive, you know, wrote more call options wrote at a more aggressive price and this time that main stock you know squeeze punch right through uh, where i wrote the call options and of course i gave up all my gains and some more and uh, and learned uh, a painful lesson right you know what i what i meant when i say hubris was uh you know i just thought hey you know i was smarter than melbourne capital the guys at citron capital and i was going to come out a winner and i wasn't smarter And the entitlement part was that I thought I was entitled to the market becoming rational because they clearly seen what a joke it was and that it wasn't going to be a redux. And I was not entitled to that either. You you mentioned that this is a mistake you still make. Did you make this mistake before the GameStop incident? Well, I have made it afterward too. (laughs) And uh, so another almost parallel example uh, was uh, of course you know alibaba 
Right? Alibaba had gone from you know 300 and change down to 150, where Charlie Munger himself uh, was saying this is a screaming value buy. And then, of course, from there, it went down to 120. I go, hey, I'm buying cheaper than Charlie Munger. What can go wrong? And then, of course, didn't take too long before it goes from 120 to 70. <laughs> and all the headline was about how, uh, you know, Alibaba is likely to be, you know, too risky to invest in, the exposure to Chinese regulatory shocks, so on and so forth. And, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I was scared too uh and uh, and and it was out of sheer laziness that uh, i didn't freak out and sell out of uh, alibaba before it bounced back and now it's at 120 and change again uh so i would say uh, i am not immune from the fear and greed and that even when i do something that seems intelligent and sensible i do it way too early uh and uh I always feel like, oh, the market's going to be rational and understand the value of that stock. Uh, and no, the market can be irrational and can disagree with me for much longer than I like. So, I mean, two examples, obviously two very different firms, you know, in one respect, you know, one is huge, you say meme stock, big questions about sort of fundamentals behind it, but sort of very opportunistic. Obviously, the Alibaba call also somewhat opportunistic, but, you know, a much more... Uh, uh, sustainable massive you know real company with decent fundamentals albeit some sort of some headwinds and uh question marks over it so but so what unifies the mistakes there is what is an element of hubris and just thinking you know better or an element of greed in piling in because you see an opportunity that you just can't resist or um yeah what what, what do you identify as the big mistake i think it's it's hubris right i think um me and then others in my position, we tend to feel like because we've been doing this for decades, because we have a research team, we got faster access to information, we got a network of other smart people, that first of all, uh, we are as close to having a crystal ball, uh, you know, as, as there, there, there could ever be on the street. Uh, we're more likely to be right, and the market will eventually have to prove us right and agree with us, right? There is definitely that element of hubris. And what we do forget is, you know, we might have an edge in information and we may be right in a very long run, but boy, in the short run, uh, market can be more irrational, uh, market can be more crazy, uh, and mispricing can get even bigger. I think we do forget that often and, and the market teaches us a lesson um, and it reminds us how, how much more whimsical it can be. And have you, you know, you mentioned you you keep making the mistake. Have have you? I suppose have you made it better? You know, are you are you doing it, but but less uh, to a lesser extent, or are you are you doing less of it, or have you learned anything, or are you just <laughs> you're going to do this again and again and again? Like you know, did you have scars, and have they taught you something? Yeah. So uh, definitely, you know, learning from it and constantly, uh, constantly reminding myself. Uh, obviously reminding, you know, teammates on the team that, uh, that we, we, can, we can come out of the discussion uh, feeling like we got this one right. We all agree. We all see it the same way. But we still got to remind ourselves. And a lot of other people will see it differently. And we might say they're irrational. They're less informed. But, boy, there might be just a lot more of them. And prices will move against us. And so the lesson there is just constantly question, look, you know, 
it's not about the rightness of the views, but it's just about the randomness of short-term fluctuations or randomness of market sentiment. So never let the bet size get large. Always be diversified, even when you feel like you got such a sure thesis. Uh, so I think we, we, you know, we got a lot better. But boy, uh, coming out of any investment committee meeting, any discussion, any model vetting exercise, uh, the initial feeling was is always, oh, this this is such a sweet opportunity. We got to pounce on this one. And then we've just all got to pull back and say, no, no, no. Um, market can surprise us. Do you think, uh, you know, speaking about Baba, do you think the current uh, state of investor sentiment around Baba is justified? Do you think that's a mistake that, that people are making? I say people, mainly Western investors are making. What you are seeing reflected in prices right now is it's not related to the actual business and then the cash on the potential, right? It's related to uh, the fear that headlines uh, are, are creating, right? Because today, if you read anything about China, and of course, when people write about China and they're going to pick a stock to point to, they're going to write about Baba, right? So it's um, the regulatory. He's talking to you, Alex. <laughs> so you're a journalist. Well, this is okay. So actually, well, hang on. Well, you have a role here. You, you have significant uh, views on China, Frank. So maybe speak to you. But, but maybe let's broaden this out for a moment, which is, which is, uh, I think is where Frank was getting to is, you know, what are some, and maybe where you're going to too, Jason, is what are some of the big uh, misunderstandings, I guess, that, 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 that let, let's say Western investors or non China based investors have about China. And I suppose some of this, you know, Baba is, is probably a decent proxy for this, but maybe there's some, some broader ones as well. So this is perfect because I think there are a few things going on in the background that we got to unpack a little bit. Otherwise, it can all feel like, hey, this is Beijing just going full out anti-business, anti-capital market. And that's really not at all what's happening. Right? So first of all, uh, if you are a big consumer tech company and you have lots of data, there is a sort of special red flag on your back. That is true. But it's not out of anti-business or anti-success. It's more out of uh, when you're Alibaba or when you're DD and you're listed in the US, and you now have a lot of American shareholders, American pension funds that, that, that you, know, uh, you know, can vote your shares and control the destiny of your company. Are you not now a maybe American company who happens to do business in China and you happen to own a treasure trove of data? If you're a big consumer tech in China, right, there's just this uncertainty around who owns the data and you don't know which way the regulator is going to lean on that. And then that, you know, I think that that, does, um, that is sort of special, right? That is not anti-business, it's just people don't know how to think about data ownership. So that's one thing. And then um, uh, another thing is uh, a lot of the uh, Chinese companies are listed in the U.S. They go through a special structure. It's not well disclosed until more recently, uh, the VIE structure. Uh, which just means it's a Cayman shell company. So the Alibaba Cayman is not actually Alibaba China, right? It's a shell company in Cayman that through a lot of legal contracts, licensing contracts, that then has cash flow right to Alibaba China. And so most of us, when we buy, we think we're buying Alibaba China. When in fact we're buying Alibaba Cayman, which is just a collection of legal contracts. And they were created to circumvent foreign ownership control, uh, you know, currency control that, that's been put in place by Beijing and both the SEC in the US and regulators in China, they're challenging, you know, the, you know, some of the 
contracts and the legality of those contracts and therefore calling into question, you know, when you buy BABA ADR, exactly what do you own? Uh, and so these are things that if you understood, you start to see, okay, this is not regulators being mean and anti-business, right? Um, the actual underlying concerns are actually much more pedestrian and boring, but significant. I've also heard you speak about sort of people not kind of understanding, um, so people misunderstanding the regulator, but people also not maybe just understanding how the market works there, perhaps sort of how retail driven it is and people sort of don't realize that and um, some of that's to do with how the big pension schemes are run but also just to do with sort of investor behavior there is that is that still the case is that something absolutely you true if you think about the u.s market right it's a very institutional market right if it's not a long-term pension fund that you know has very you know, sophisticated investment staff and outsourced to very sophisticated managers, right? It's a hedge fund that's sort of arming out so weird pricing movement. But in China, it's, it's 85% retail trading. Uh, and we're talking like retail investors who mostly see investing as a, you know, a replacement for gambling. Uh, and so, you know, prices in China are more volatile. Uh, you can say less rational. Uh, it, it really doesn't take into a lot of sort of fundamental and long-term view into, into the pricing uh, scheme. And so it's a very different market. And uh, uh, because of that, regulators in China tend to have this very paternalistic view when it comes to regulating the market. If you ask the regulators, like, what's your number one mis mission? It's to protect individual investors from self-harming. Like, that's like their number one mission, right? Uh, and that certainly isn't the mission for, for you know, say, a U.S. regulator, right? Uh, and so, yeah, when they when they set up rules, uh, what they think about, what they care about is very, very different than regulators in the U.S. And, you know, for us, it can feel like, God, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit sort of, you know, interventionist. Uh, so I liken it to, it's like tiger mom parenting. When you think about China regulators, it's a lot like tiger mom parenting. It's like, we know better, right? You know, we're not going to let you do silly things to hurt yourself. We know better. We're going to prevent you from self-harming. Yeah, but I mean, I, probably obviously sticking with China here. I, was, I saw that the MSCI China is approaching sort of zero returns since inception 30 years ago against a backdrop of an economy that's grown 40 times. How, how does that make sense? And I'll ask this from a sort of personal point of view because I've been, like you, buying the dip. Uh, in uh, MSCI China stocks, so mainly those uh, Hong Kong listed tech stocks. Um, and uh, I want to know, firstly, have I made the right decision, Jason? Please tell me I have. That'd be nice. Um, and uh, and secondly, you know, is is that is that all that all of that the reason it hasn't made any money? Is that all driven by sentiment from the West and lack of lack of appreciation, understanding? A lot of it. So, Frank, first of all, uh, buying China. Uh, and, and then buying it for, you know, the long run makes sense, right? I mean, they're basically two major growth drivers in the world, right? You got the U.S. by right, really pushing the technological frontier. You got China, that fast follower with a massive addressable market, right? That's another major growth engine, and they're not even very correlated. So, you know, you know going long China as an investor, it's pretty sensible. Now, I think where a lot of people make mistakes is they do it passively, Right, you can do it passively if you're dealing with S and P 500. Right, That's because me. it's a it's a pretty efficient market. Right, if you're you know in a pretty efficient market, buy the index is pretty good. China, 85% retail trading. Right, a lot of times 
prices don't make any sense, right? And the index uh, is sort of constantly giving a lot of weight to the hottest, most thematic stocks. And so if you just track the index, you're gonna get some pretty bad outcome. Um, you know, the average active manager in China uh, outperforms by 4%. So if you compound it over 30 years, right, the difference between the index and what you get from active management is, is enormous. Uh, and a lot of mis uh, mistakes made by Westerners is also that they buy the offshore stuff, right? If you look at MSCI China, it's mostly the ADRs, right? Because look, it's, it's they're listed in the US, you're more familiar, feel safer. Uh, there's more news on them, right? So it's uh, you're buying the Alibaba's um, after it's sort of listed in the US and it's already the biggest company in China, right? So the, the additional gain from there just isn't as attractive. Most people don't know stocks that are just listed onshore in China, right? They call the A shares. Uh, Axis is a little more complicated. There are not as many products. There's not as much information on these stocks, uh, but that's where actually the growths are. Yeah, there's been there's been, there's been a real boom, right? Particularly flows from uh, European asset managers towards this space. It was like the best selling sector in 2020 and I think 21. It's grown massively. And you shouldn't be surprised because if you look at uh, EPS growth, right? If you're, if you're going to sort of handicap how much growth you're buying, you want to look at like the underlying earnings per shares growth. Last 15 years for onshore A shares, it's like 14%. Uh, you benchmark that against the median company in the US, earnings per shares the last 15 years, actually only been about 5%, right? So you're talking about almost three times the growth versus the average Chinese, uh, versus the average American company. So you're buying a lot of growth and uh, and then that compounds over time into, into better return. So not surprising a lot of people who are looking for reasonably priced growth are going to China. Just to praise you that, Frank, you're right to be in China, but you're doing it the wrong way. Is that? That's yeah, no, I, I, heard, I heard that. I would yeah. be selling straight away. <laughs> selling, piling into like an active small cap manager. Maybe, maybe someone who does some sort of quant investing. I don't, I don't know, Jason. Um, interesting. What about, um, so, so, so that's one way that the West, another way, I suppose, that sort of the West or US investors, European investors are misunderstanding um, investing in China. What, what about what we've seen recently in terms of sort of um, understanding of political risk? So obviously in the wake of uh, Russia's invasion of, of, of the Ukraine, there's sort of been uh, a relatively decent sell-off in, in China. And again, I'm using the MSCI uh, as, as a proxy here, so may, maybe not sort of the best indicator. But, um, and, and I think some of that's been ascribed to, you know, people sort of worried about, you know, China's position here. And, and it's sort of, you know, again, it's, it's just... A, a form of concerns over over political risk. Do you think that's uh, misplaced or well understood, uh, or, or or maybe for the time being, sort of people people are judging that that correctly? I think it's a lot of people getting out of headline risk, right? And then you know, headline risk. I don't I, I don't want to minimize that, right? That's a real risk for some people, right? If you're a pension fund and uh, China's in your portfolio, and if China sides with Putin, right? That's a lot of headline risk. You, you as a pension CIO, you don't want to take that risk, right? Uh, so it makes sense. Some people should should be sellers, right? If headline risk is uh, is a major career risk for you, uh, but like in terms of the actual risk, um, sure. I mean, it's 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 there's a small probability that China might come out and profess undying love for Putin, but you know China's rational uh, to degrees, right? Uh, they know it's far better to be neutral to play Switzerland at a time when Switzerland doesn't want to play Switzerland, right? Um, they know there's a, a huge gain to, to, to be neutral, right? There's huge gain for renminbi going forward as that rival currency for global 
clearing, right? You know, petrol dollar moving a little to petrol rending B is not bad for China. So China can be a net beneficiary out of this. So um, I think it's it's being rational, right? You're talking, you're looking at the rhetoric, right? It's starting to be much more balanced, right? Hey, they're opposed to the, you know, the human suffering. They're opposed to war. They want to send some aid to Ukraine. Uh, they're minimizing that, that, that friendship with, uh, with Russia. Uh, so that's the reality, which is, you know, China is very self-interested, right? There's a lot to gain by, by being neutral and playing both sides. Uh, but again, you know, the, the headline risk, I think, scares a lot of institutional investors, a lot of ESG investors, uh, which means for others who's willing to take that headline risk where it doesn't matter because it's your personal portfolio uh, or you just don't have a constituency that, that cares about headline risk, then... Yeah, this is a time to harvest uh, headline risk premium, fear premium, uh, where you can buy quality assets, quality growth for cheap. Again, Frank, basically you there, just you know, piling in, no, no concerns. No, no concern for the headline risk. Yeah, I'll be writing less headlines about China. That's <laughs> um, really interesting. I, I was also going to wonder, Jason. We've we've touched on, I suppose, mistakes that. Um, Western investors have made in, in investing in China or in thinking about China. What about mistakes that Chinese investors make? So um, you mentioned that you know eighty five percent of of trades are you know retail rather than institutional. Um, so there's a lot. So I'm assuming, that, and, and you all, but you also used the phrase sort of like it's a you know I can't remember how you exactly said it, but basically sort of a replacement for gambling, which doesn't necessarily sound like there's brilliant behaviour. My understanding of gambling is generally generally you lose um so, so what's what's that like do, do chinese investors make are, are they good investors are they making good decisions they are really bad investors and this is why the regulators they look at the data they go we need to protect them right like if they're all great investors they do just fine or compounding their wealth right the regulators will be would be would be fine right but when they look at the data right versus buy and hold right if they could just buy a diversified portfolio right they would be so much better off i think uh, when they look at data it's like 12 percent behind a a dumb index right and that's a lot of self-harming right um and the reason for that is uh, like you say uh when 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 it's gambling it's there's not a lot of sort of deep insight that go into what they pick what they hold it's very news driven it's very theme driven of course they always get into a theme much too late after price has already gone up 150%. So there's not much left other than risk. And they keep doing this, right? They, they find a new sexy theme, uh, next stock that popped a lot and, and they get in and they get disappointed and they get out. Uh, so not surprisingly, a uh, really bad outcome over a long horizon. Sounds like a decent amount of performance chasing there. I mean, are there, that's the retail, I suppose, are there managers who are doing a good job? I mean, I'm sorry, and I'm also saying, oh, for sure, you are. I mean, sort of domestic Chinese managers sort of doing, um, you know, running funds. Are, are there better options for them than, than for these investors than just just trading themselves? Do they invest in funds well or, or also not particularly? Yeah, so uh, so, so I've actually been researching, uh, you know, Chinese managers and see, hey, are, are there people who are persistently good? What do they do? And what I've found is in any given year, you will find someone who's just doing God's work, right? Someone's alpha is 30%. And you go, wow, he's got the magic. And of course, you track that fund. The next year, he's like dead last. And so what you see is a lot of the managers who's got awesome short-term numbers, they're just taking really huge risks, right? A, a active portfolio in China you know, could have anywhere from five stocks 
to maybe you know 20. <laughs> five five right. stocks in the whole portfolio. Very concentrated. Hey, right? look, Warren Buffett's something like, you know, if you, you diversification is fully it, so if you've got four good ideas, go for it. So maybe, you know, maybe, maybe they're all just, you know, massive Buffett students or, or maybe not. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when you bet big, right, either you win big or you lose big. And uh, to measure skill, you got to look at persistence. And what you see is there's almost no persistence in China when it at least comes down to sort of top ranked managers. Uh, and also another interesting data point is if you just look at public mutual funds, uh, five years ago, when I started you know, gathering data, uh, the average tenure at the job as the PM was like 2.5 years, right? So not super experienced, but it's a very young market, right? So nothing wrong in a young market. The PMs just, just can't possibly have been around for 30 years if the market's only, you know, 15 years old. And then five years later, I figured at least you know, the average tenure would be like seven and a half years, but I know it's like three and a half. Why? Because they churn managers uh, very aggressively. Uh, If you got a big number, you leave and you go start your hedge fund. Uh, Or if you have bad number, instead of making a mistake, learn from it and do better, you get fired (laughs) and replaced by the next guy. Uh, And so you're not surprised. There's not a lot of sort of memory retention going on either. Uh, No, they'll they'll learn from it, right? But it's, uh, it's still very early days. I've got a a question uh, regarding uh, state run. Uh, funds or you know front uh, sorry state-run companies rather uh, and it seems to be sort of universally accepted rule among uh, asset managers outside of China that you just don't touch you don't touch these companies you don't invest in them is that a massive mistake that is that is uh, usually you would be right to say like stale enterprises they're not actually companies right they're, they're like it would be like the DMV listing itself, and you probably don't want to hold hold a slice of that. The DMV, Frank, is like the uh, driving license. Um, okay, thanks. Thing, so. for, for non-American yeah. audience, DMV is basically the, the 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 American state bureaucracy that issues you the driver's license, right? I hear it's a pretty easy license, though. So, <laughs> yeah, it's believed like if you think government agencies are not super efficient, like the DMV is viewed as the least efficient branch of the government in the U.S., right? That, that's like how bad it is. So you kind of think, hey, you know, like you know, state-owned enterprises are like the DMV, right? It's like a you know, like very inefficient government branch. But in China, that's actually not the case, oddly enough. Um, but you got to sort all the state-owned enterprises into like regional, like you know, city-level state-owned enterprises to like the Beijing, the centrally connected ones. The regional ones are not very good. There are a variety of reasons you can you can you know you can sort of imagine for yourself why like a, a small state-owned enterprise controlled by the you know, city politicians, probably not, not a great idea. Uh, but when it comes to sort of the Beijing controlled or connected, they actually tend to outperform the market by about 2% per annum reliably. Uh, and then when you look deeper, uh, it's because, you know, first of all, there's a huge amount of scrutiny because they tend to be like the face of the government. So if they do anything wrong, uh, personally or company-wise, it's like a huge embarrassment to the party and they get removed. So from a from a governor's perspective, right, you don't have entrenched management that you can't get rid of, right? This is if you underperform, you're fired, right? Because you've embarrassed the government and you're replaced uh, with someone else. Uh, and so it's it's a pretty tight ship. And another thing is uh, the government also wants to you know demonstrate leadership. So they want to make sure that the big state owned enterprise that are, you know, face of the, the country do really well. So there's always subsidies and policy tailwinds to help out as well. 
Uh, and, and so you kind of have a government put on these firms, but there's a downside. The government always come out and bail them out. In addition to that, you also got a government tailwind. Doesn't that make them inefficient, though, if they're always getting subsidized? Uh, so they so it sort of cuts both ways, right? They they know there's sort of a kind of if something sort of catastrophic system uh, sort of systemic that happens, the government will come and bail them out. Uh, but if they don't perform well, meaning they're not paying out big dividends, they're now growing EPS fast, they also get fired. Um, so it's kind of they got the carrot and stick going on at the same time, and it seems to do a good enough job. Fantastic, Frank. Was there anything else you wanted to ask before we say a big thank you? No, that's it from me. I'll be uh, sure to be dumping my iShares uh, MSCI China ETF. <laughs> well, that was our interview with Jason. And yeah, look, Frank, a lot, a lot in there. I thought both both the mistakes that he made and perhaps that's where to start. Uh, but then also the mistakes that people make when trying to invest in China. Something I like that he said is that you can be perfectly intelligent and sensible about about what you've done, but you end up going way too early into a stock or a market. And the market can just be irrational and totally disagree with you for for, for a long time and perhaps longer than you than you want it to. Yeah, that it's an old adage, isn't it? You know, the market can be can be rational for longer than you can be liquid, right? So you, you're sort of right, but timing does matter. Uh, yeah, it comes down to the boring basics of diversification. You know, you, you might think you're right, but don't, you know, go full tilt into Chinese small cap. Yeah, I also like just going back to here to before we come on to China, just sort of his errors at the beginning, just, just how candid he was, because, you know, this guy is a professional fund manager. And, and obviously, look, I think a lot of them um, like to preach a certain thing and pretend that they certainly practice what they preach and sort of, you know, whether that be diversification, whether that be um, you know, just sort of good habits, but actually he's like, look, yeah, we're doing it all right over here, but in the personal, I'm having some fun. I'm doing some, you know, I'm, I'm writing calls on meme stocks and stuff like that, which was, you know, I suppose refreshing to hear because I'm sure everyone does it, but but not everyone tells us about it. Yeah, definitely. And, and on China itself, you know, he's coming at it from a very sort of neutral standpoint. I like the sort of the, the concept of the fact that the Chinese state is paternalistic, you know, protecting investors from self-harm. From the outside looking in, it often looks draconian, nanny state, uh, but some of what they're clamping down on, you know, does make sense. You know, data ownership by corporates, you know, that's something we're grappling with all over the world. You know, kids spending too much time playing video games, uh, you know, to outright banning it in certain times, max number of hours. Loads of parents, I'm sure, can agree with that. Possibly not if you jaywalk, um, automatically being fined and your WePay account being deducted. You know, that's certainly a bit scary. But I think a lot of what they do, particularly around anti-monopolistic stuff, is, you know, isn't all bad yeah i mean it was interesting just to get his perspective on it wasn't it just sort of why why they're acting the way they are and how it's not all you know sort of communist anti-business things in in his view um i also thought that um some interesting things around sort of state-owned enterprises and how to kind of think about those and why again there actually are some sort of um Sticks and carrots, I believe, was his phrase for sort of why those aren't necessarily terrible, terrible things to invest in. L let's get to it. The bit, the bit where he sort of said you were wrong in your approach to China. And let's be honest, I think probably how most people are approaching it, which is, you know, look, get an index um, or, you know, buy the MSCI EM or buy the China index. And obviously that's largely dominated by these big tech stocks. And I think obviously when you buy them, you're not necessarily buying the, the China listed version of those shares and things. And, and that's where he thought people were making a mistake. Yeah, I thought the nuances of how that structured were interesting. And certainly the fact that, 
he his point about the fact you're already buying these companies when they're the biggest companies in China. The the, the ship has already sailed. It's not really where the massive opportunity is going to be, even though it looks enticing with 1.4 billion people. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we should we should put a little flag here, which is you know he's like all managers and like all good managers, you know he he's taking a different approach and, and he's obviously sort of to some degree suggesting that, that that that's a better approach. So there's. There's a level of interest in there, but but broadly his 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 point was you need to be active in China and you need to look beyond these 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 mega caps. I thought his stat about you know four to five percent per annum outperformance on average by active managers in China. I mean that that is enormous. Uh, I've not seen that data, but I'd be very keen to see that data. And he can maybe point me in the direction of the active fund that I should be. Paying. Yeah, well, I'm sure he might He'd have an opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, I thought it was also interesting just when he was talking about the mistakes that the Chinese investors make. So whether that's sort of these these managers who you know, shoot the lights out one year and obviously probably by being quite concentrated, quite risky, and then the next year that doesn't work so well. And also just how sort of all these retail investors are very, very in and out in the market, very emotional. Um, and obviously, and again, comes back to his point on regulation. And that's not exclusive to Chinese markets. We've seen a lot of that uh, elsewhere, particularly in the US. Obviously, the meme stocks, his first mistake that he made. Um, but some of that, some of that's cooling. Definitely, there is a little bit more rationality coming back to markets. But his his first point about being intelligent and and sensible still applies, right? Don't don't go full in, even though stuff looks like it's sold off a lot. It, the market might not agree with you yet. There's a lot more behavioural factors at play in the market. That's a good point and a good point on which to end. So it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger, and goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.